Well, hello and welcome to Polity Matters. This is episode three of BYOBCO. My name is Ben Ratliff and I'm joined by Scott Edberg and Jared Nelson. And today we are continuing the discussion that we began last time on the second part of the preface of the PCA Book of Church Order. We've been uh, through the king and head of the church, and we've worked our way through the first three of the eight preliminary principles. And today we're going to continue that journey through the principles, beginning with number four, and hopefully making it all the way through. But before we do that, I want to remind you about our guest that we still have along for a ride today. He's decided to come back. It's Steve Tipton, who's with us. Steve, you you um you came on last time waving around your illustrious Florida residency, but still we've invited you back to join us uh, again. Uh, what do you think so far about your time on Polity Matters? Give give the people an impression. Great. No, it's been good. Uh, it, it's rare that you find you know one brother that wants to sit down and talk about these things, much less three. So uh, this is this has been this has been exciting. We are so glad to have you. It was it was excellent excellent to have you around last time. Well, we're just going to jump straight in. Uh, if 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 you need any uh, preamble on the pr- principles, go back to our previous episode. We're beginning today with principle number four in the second part of the BCO preface, which. Uh, says that godliness is founded on truth. A test of truth is its power to promote holiness according to our Savior's rule. By their fruits, ye shall know them, from Matthew 7.20. No opinion can be more pernicious or more absurd than that which brings truth and falsehood upon the same level. On the contrary, there is an inseparable connection between faith and practice, truth and duty. Otherwise, it would be of no consequence either to discover truth or to embrace it. And before we get really into the meat of this, I wanted to point out, and and this is worth saying about all of the principles, they are are saturated with scripture, not always direct quotes as it's referenced in the parenthetical here in in principle number four, but there's there's scripture all throughout these. But in particular, principle number four is referring to uh, this portion of Matthew 7, where Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And he takes this idea of fruits and works it into an illustration. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This reminds me, or it brought to mind at least when I was reading through um, Aspenwall Hodge's work on the preliminary principles, where he makes the point that truth is the only source of goodness, and goodness is the fruit and test of truth. This is a common idea that Jesus uses in his teachings. Let's talk about how how it comes to be in our government. Steve, uh, talk to us a little bit about how courts make declarations on what's good and what's godly using this principle. Yeah, so... um... Uh, you know, I think it's really important that we recognize again, you know, that this is a biblical principle, a biblical idea, uh, and that it, it it ties into the, the the power that the church has. That you know, our the power of the church is not to uh, you know to decide uh, what is the truth, you know, what is truth, or determine what is godliness, or, or determine what good character is um, apart from scripture. Rather, our our role is to declare what Scripture teaches, uh, and so it's not. Uh, again, that's the idea of 
you know, bringing truth and falsehood upon the same level. And this sense, you know, falsehood with regard to what is good would be, you know, worldly human wisdom. Our role, our job, uh, our calling is to declare the truth as it is found in Scripture. And so we cannot seek to bring on the same level biblical truth and our opinions or our understanding of things we, we declare the truth of scripture rather than make it up. So we're not determining truth. Uh, we are uh, we are declaring truth as it's found in scripture. This preliminary principle almost seems to be a way to balance and understand some of the other ones, such as preliminary principle number one and five, uh, where we are talking about uh, some diversity and liberty of conscience, that there's not a, a limitless diversity and liberty that we're all just getting together and either voting on something or anybody can believe whatever they want to. Uh, I think this is an important principle to remind us uh, that this all needs to be grounded in truth. And we don't just have a minimalistic uh, truth here. Um, this isn't just a, a fundamentalism that even just has a couple of points or seven or eight points. Um, I, I'm reminded of, uh, of a Machen quote, uh, when he said, uh, when a man has once come into sympathetic contact with that noble tradition of the Reformed faith, he will never uh, readily be satisfied with a mere fundamentalism that seeks in some hasty modern statement a greatest common measure between men of different creeds. Rather, he will always strive uh, to stand in the great uh, central current of the church's life that has come down to us through Augustine and Calvin to the standards of the Reformed faith. Um, so this is not saying that we just have a few things that we uh, think are true or that everybody can have a, an opinion on anything, but we're we're talking about there are clear and plain truths uh, in matters of faith and doctrine and practice, and these should be what unites us. And on the things where scripture is silent, uh, of course, there's going to be liberty, but we can't pretend like everybody's opinion is of equal worth. We have to have these discussions on the basis of what does scripture say and can you tell me where scripture uh, commands or uh, demands that? Yeah, I, I also like the connection that it makes between, you know, faith and practice and then truth and duty, because in one sense, they're, they're restating those same things, right? What are we to believe? We are to what is true. And what are we, what are we to practice? Well, our practice is not uh, simply, you know, the, the application that a pastor happens to come up with on a Thursday afternoon, right? Practice is duty. Um, and so while, yeah, we, we still have to think about how to apply a text and provide a variety of ways in which a congregation or an, even an individual Christian can put into practice the truth that they believe, at the end of the day, if we are, if we are declaring practices that aren't duties, then we are, we are erring, we are, we are straying from what this preliminary principle is talking about. Uh, and again, it just it underlines the importance of these things. They're they're not they're not simply the the foundation for a form of government. They're they're a foundation for what it means to be the church. Uh, what what is a church, and how does it operate? How does it exercise its rights, its responsibilities? It's really helpful. the The preliminary principles here connect number four and five. When number five begins this way, saying. While under the conviction of the above principle, it is necessary to make effective provision that all who are admitted as teachers be sound in the faith. There are truths and forms with respect to which men of good character and principles may differ. In all these, it is the duty both of private Christians and societies to exercise mutual forbearance toward each other. 
Steve, we're, we're, we're continuing the thought from number four into number five. Number five sets up these distinctions for us between those who teach and those who do not. Tease that out for us a little bit. Yeah, so um, it's talking about this idea that there are those who are going to be uh, teaching, right? There's those who teach and those who don't, and that it is important. It's necessary. In fact, it says it's necessary uh, to make effective provision uh, for those all admit as teachers that they be sound in the faith. Um, and, and so there's so much there. We, we could spend all day just talking about this, you know, uh, the idea of effective provision, that, that there's no way that we can require it or um, or, or or do it in what you know in, in a in a in a in one sense, right? We make provision for this, and we're going to fail at times. I mean, we we've seen that even in the history of the PCA, where we've uh, admitted teachers who ended up not being sound in the faith, and and that, that you know we go back and try to shore up our provisions to make them more effective. Uh, or we we seek to do that. It's not just in the BCO, of course. It's also in the ways in which presbyteries carry out these provisions, whether they will be effective or not. But the point is, is that that teachers have to be sound in the faith. They have to be sound in the faith as we have understood it as a denomination, in the sense that you know this is where we start talking about um, it, you know adherence to the Westminster standards. That that the standards, our Westminster standards, define for us. We, we've used that as our definition for what it means to be sound in the faith. Uh, again, this isn't a, a, a bare fundamentalism. This isn't a minimalism. Uh, even, if we, even if we want to talk about, um, you know, the way our, the RAA is about, uh, you know, the system of doctrine or the, you know, the, um, somebody help me here. Uh, vitals the of the faith. System. Yeah, vitals that, uh, thank you. That that these the system or vitals are not describing a minimalist reformed understanding. They're they're defining a maximalist reformed understanding. Um, and so while there may be bits and pieces that we allow uh, differences and we, we grant exceptions, uh, the the point is is that a, a man who is going to take that vow, that ordination vow. Uh, the second ordination vow needs to be able to do that in good faith. I mean, that's what good faith subscription really is talking about: is the idea that that he can he can uh, vow to receive and adopt the 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 confessions and catechisms as their understanding of what Scripture teaches. They can make that vow in good faith because the presbytery has said the places where they may differ are not. Uh, are you know, they're not hostile to the whole system. And again, thinking of in a maximal sense, not a minimal sense. And so it's important that churches uh, adhere to the doctrinal standards, uh, the form of doctrine that we have as a denomination. But it's also important to recognize that uh, members, right, uh, that that regular members, and we call them that, uh, do not have to subscribe. We were talking about this uh, last last time. They don't have to subscribe to the standards that we hold. Um, now again, they take five vows, and those vows are are not, uh, you know, they, they don't deny the fact that there is a government uh, and even discipline that that is established in the church that that includes the fact that teachers are going to be sound in the faith. Um, but it 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 reminds us, it reminds them that the uh, the basis of admission as a as a member is not on the, the maximal doctrinal standards, uh, but a credible profession of faith, 
which is uh, you know uh, what the what the five membership vows are seeking to establish that somebody has a credible professional faith. Uh, and so the this this pr particular principle is helping us to see that that there are there are differences between those. And so uh, we can we can accept into membership someone who who may differ. Uh, in some of the principles, uh, some of the the, the aspects of, of the confession, uh, maybe even you know quite a bit of it, for that matter. Uh, you know, I know we talked last time about uh, you know the, the Baptist, um, and we were speaking, or it seemed that you know, the suggestion is that the only real difference is maybe that they have a different understanding of the subjects of baptism. Um, but you know, we can we can accept into membership an Arminian Baptist who has very different understandings about salvation. Um, you know, they're going to hear a lot of things on Sunday, hopefully, that they would disagree with. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't be a member in our congregation, uh, you know, as long as they understand, look, this is what we believe and this is what we're going to be teaching and this is what you're going to be hearing. You will see children, infants baptized here. Um, in that sense, it becomes up to them to make that decision about whether or not they want to to join with us. So. This may be breaking news. Steve Tipton would receive an Arminian into his fellowship. Well, we have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want to get into a discussion a little bit here on good faith subscription. And Steve brought it up a little bit. I want us to get there in just a minute. But first, this idea of mutual forbearance. And Jared, you have some thoughts for us on, on who gets to decide um, on this matter of, of mutual forbearance, what fits into it and what doesn't. And you, you, you take us really far back. You wrote your notes out originally and I looked at them and it scared me because it reminded me of my church history exams for ordination, which just still give me shivers. Uh, help us out. Uh, well, just the historical context of American Presbyterianism when um, the Westminster confession of faith was adopted as the confession for the Presbyterian church uh, this was in 1729. There was the Adopting Act. And when they did that, they wanted ministers to subscribe, but they could exempt uh, a couple of places, explicitly chapter 20 and 23, uh, chapter 20 that talked about the civil government enforcing church censors, and um, chapter 23 that talked about the power of the civil magistrate in enforcing orthodoxy. And uh, that seems to be a context in which some of this mutual forbearance was going. I, li I like some of what Steve was talking about with, there's a lot of different groups here. There's the members, there are the uh, the pastors and officers, and then there's even other societies that's talked about here. And so within those groups, there's different levels of uh, adherence to the confession. Uh, but um, And so the forbearance with some of the members may be different than what the forbearance is with uh, some of the uh, the officers between each other and what what sort of variance there is between those officers. Uh, and so that that leads then to the question, I think, of uh, what's that mutual forbearance? What are the lines of that? Where is it that we are going to recognize there's differences between uh, officers uh, within the church? And maybe Scott has some uh, thoughts on that because I haven't heard from him for a while. Oh, yeah, I've just been quietly sitting here in the background for since the last episode and <laughs> um I, I like how you framed it as it relates to tiers and levels of membership how we treat our brothers and sisters outside of the communion perhaps um our baptist brothers uh, we have much more latitude if i could use that word with them rather than 
those even within our own congregations or within the leadership itself. And so you think of the general brotherly love uh, that you share with those who are outside your church, perhaps even outside your our own denomination. Uh, it's generally much broader. I just got a, a thing in the mail from the Gideons inviting me to, I'm sure you guys have that as well, their October pastor appreciation meals. That's very broad, right? That's including a very um, diverse group of traditions, uh, but there is patience. Uh, there is great patience as you have breakfast with brothers outside of our own denomination. But then as you winnow it in, as you narrow it um, within our own congregation, there are limits. We've talked about some of them, perhaps the more controversial issues where people might be expelled because of their faith, but you still have great latitude with your congregants. Uh, you don't anticipate your congregation having all the theological points perfectly in order like the the men who are shepherding over them you you grant grace you grant patience um when thinking about your baptist brother do you bring them up on charges for withholding baptism from their child or something of that nature and it will usually teach through proact you teach proactively you you don't teach correctively you try to teach them as you come alongside them. I think that's the forbearance that's in mind here. Um, as you escalate that though to those who hold office and who've made vows before God and upholding these matters, uh, it becomes much narrower. I would say vast, it's vastly narrower from those other two tiers. Um, as we've seen within our own denomination, there are some Presbyterians that have a list of things you can take exception for, and th that's it. Uh, if you have an issue outside of these five or six ideas, then this presbytery won't consider you for office. Um, and the same may happen on sessions as ruling elders are ordained or deacons. And, and so the it, it it funnels in the higher, the more authority you have within the local church, the narrower uh, the narrower you are with perhaps the latitude of forbearance. Uh, and so I guess that question points us towards does this principle itself then lend itself to good faith subscription? Uh, and I, I kind of have that group. This isn't meant to encourage a libertine approach to ministry or our doctrines, but is this a, a foundational aspect of our own system of government as it relates to the good faith? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think this requires, um, you know, whether we want to call it good faith subscription or whether we, whether we want to call it, you know, the practice of, allowing exceptions. I mean, I, I think you could have a strict subscription Presbyterianism that still would hold to this principle, especially in line with earlier principles that that even if we uh, err, we're only, you know, violating our own, uh, you know, right rather than infringing upon the rights of somebody else. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's important to, to, to recognize, again, it's necessary to make effectual provision for all that are admitted as teachers be sound in the faith. And it's not just that, that we have to make effective provisions for that, but we also have to determine what we mean by sound in the faith. And that's not up to private Christians per se. Um, rather, it is up to, uh, you know, the, the denomination has to make those provisions or, or the association in our sense of the denomination. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that this is really helpful in is that, um, you know, uh, for instance, I mean, I've, I've got a really good friend who's a Reformed Anglican, 
and we have an enormous amount in common. And when we get together, we love to talk about, you know, reform scholasticism and other things like that. Um, he, he might, however, if he were ever admitted into the PCA, he might be like my worst enemy because of our differences, right? Um, okay, hyperbole, but still, right? I, I can I can be friendly with him and I can exercise mutual forbearance over those things that I know we disagree on because we are in different communions, um, you know, because he's not trying to transform the PCA into Anglicanism. I'm not trying to, you know, tr transform the ACNA into Presbyterianism. And so I think that there's that sense in which part of that mutual forbearance, especially amongst teachers, is the recognition that we have to go to those places where sound in the faith, whatever, whatever that means in the PCA or the ACNA or anywhere else, that, that, that's, that we, we align ourselves with that idea. And so, again, I'm not saying that we, we ought to be strict subscription or, or maybe some people say we are. Um, I think good faith subscription is, is a workable uh, mechanism for making sure that those who are admitted to be teachers are sound in the faith. Um, like anything, right? I mean, the, the uh, proof is in you know, the, the pudding. The proof is in the outcome of, of what you end up with. And so uh, there's always going to be times where we do a good job and do a bad job. But, but I think as far as the principle goes, I don't think it requires good faith subscription, but I do think it dovetails well, it well with good faith subscription. It certainly doesn't deny good faith subscription. It doesn't require it, but it doesn't deny it either. Yeah. If you read Morton Smith, who's known as a full subscriptionist, he has a, a note on this that says, uh, allowing for differences in opinion about certain areas of truth, uh, a balance should be maintained between what is necessary for teachers in the church to believe and that in which liberty is permitted. There is no defining here of these two areas. And I, I think he kind of points that out to, as he was more of a full subscriptionist, um, that uh, he could affirm this principle if the confession is, is uh, defining those lines, but then within um, taking exceptions and allowing exceptions to the confession, um, both of those seem to function within this uh, this principle. Yeah. And building off of that, do you think forbearance isn't compromising? It's not the idea of at a church court when you grant an exception that, oh, well, that, that view is right. I mean, the court is allowing you to have that view despite the view. The, the you, though the court itself rejects the view as taught in the confession, think of like images or something. We think you're wrong on this, but we're allowing you to privately have that view and still um, serve in our communion. And so it, it, part of forbearance is not ceding the ground to say that's that's what we believe. It is patiently working with those uh, around you, and um, <laughs> they're not people aren't always right. And so as you're dealing with their errors, um, they're not so bad that they aren't ordainable in our nomination. Let's move on to number six. Though the character, qualifications, and authority of church officers are laid down in the Holy Scriptures, as well as the proper method of officer investiture, the power to elect persons to the exercise of authority in any particular society resides in that society. Jared, why don't you get us started here and, and, and sort of outline the basics that are presented here in number six. Well, one of the, the major elements of this is uh, the principle of um, the election of persons that are the officers of that society. 
Um, that seems to be what some of the commentators will narrow in on. Um, just to read a couple of quotes from a couple of them. Uh, Smith says, a particular society or congregation has the right to elect its own officers. This is to be done in accord with the scriptural qualifications for such officers. And then J.A. Hodge, uh, writing from Northern Presbyterian perspective, says the right of election belongs to those over whom the authority is to be exercised. Pastors, uh, ruling elders, and deacons must be elected by the particular churches in which they hold office. Um, so this, uh, in some ways, is arguing against the idea of a bishop appointing certain people over a congregation that the congregation has no say in, uh, that they do not affirm that decision at all. Um, and so this is maintaining the right of the, the congregation in that context. Recently, we had uh, an appeal in our presbytery that went up to the SJC um, having to do with men who were being disciplined by a borrowed session because they had disagreed with uh, a proposed teaching elder becoming their pastor. Um, it was ruled as a was it, they were accused of fifth commandment violations by sort of bucking against the the session in there um, that was overseeing them. Uh, the session was found at fault by the SJC properly, but Jim Eggert uh, wrote a concurring opinion, and in that opinion he writes that the the right of congregations to select the officers of the church implies a correlative freedom of its individual members to exercise their conscience about those who will rule over them without interference or censure from the courts of the church. And I just, I just bring that up. It's, it's, this is a significant issue in many cases. This, this gets into matters of, of courts oppressing those under their care and, and forcing them to certain things. This is this preliminary principle keeps us um, from, from our rights being infringed upon. Uh, it, it keeps us from having pastors over us that we have not elected or, or ruling elders or deacons. And when you're when you're thinking about it, one of the main responsibilities of a congregation in the life of like a congregational meeting, and part of that is the calling and choosing their leaders. They they have that that right, and we should be very slow. And sessions themselves should be very slow to usurp that right. Um, that is their great privilege. They don't get to approve budgets. They, they do get to approve the sale of properties and things of that nature, but they don't have a lot of say outside of who rules them, uh, as um, we could probably talk about in Guy Waters' book as it relates to the leadership as vested uh, in the ruling elders, but it's the congregation who chooses their leaders. Um, I had a congregant walk up to me uh, this weekend and said, uh, we voted against you, uh, but we're happy you're here, and we were wrong. And so th there, it is their liberty. Um, I didn't go home and soak. Um, I was gladdened by their change of heart, uh, but it is their liberty. They got to vote their conscience on who would rule them or who would lead them, who would shepherd them. And the same goes for ruling elders and other officers as well. If anybody's reeling at the at, at this uh, epiphany that congregations don't get to approve their own church budgets, go read BCO twelve, and you'll see that it falls into the uh, the, the parameters of a session. In my Dutch tradition, the when we transitioned to the PCA, the deacons were the ones that basically engineered and presented the budget without the elders, and and you could amend the budget on the floor of the congregational meeting as well. And so when we transferred to the PCA, they thought that they were robbed of all of their authority and power 
because they no longer had the authority over the budget anymore. And they could no longer change the pastor's pension because of a bad sermon from the other week. And so it is a little different. (laughs) You get to choose and you trust those leaders who you choose. Well, and I I think it also goes back to that, uh, you know, something we were talking about uh, the last time about the idea that the authority um, that that Christ invests, he invested in the church. It's exercised by the officers, but it's invested in the church. And so uh, this is this is carrying on that same idea that that they do have this right. And, and, you know, it's correct. I mean, you have very few rights. As a, as a member, I mean, op- well, very few opportunities to vote. I don't mean you have your few rights. You have very few opportunities to vote, but you do have this this uh, responsibility. And so, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't take that away either by just placing you know men over the congregation and they don't have any choice in that matter. Um, I, I'll be interested to hear the decision about associate pastor or assistant pastors someday. So on to number seven, all church power, whether exercised by the body in general or by representation, is only ministerial and declarative since the Holy Scriptures are the only rule of faith and practice. No church judicatory may make laws to bind the conscience. All church courts may err through human frailty, yet it rests upon them to uphold the laws of Scripture, though this obligation be lodged with fallible men. Scott, uh, you want to jump in here and, and help us understand this distinction that's being set up between ministerial and declarative. Uh, yeah, so uh, you'll find this is almost as popular as um, the ordinary means of grace within Presbyterian polity, but that our ministry is ministerial and declarative. It is ministerial uh, in that uh, those who are ministering are acting as God's instruments. We are his instruments. We are ministering to the people, and it is declarative in that we are proclaiming the truth and goodness uh, of the scriptures. This is perhaps against uh, being magisterial or legislative, uh, in that the church does not have the authority of the magistrate with the sword. It can't kill someone for being a heretic by its own right, and it cannot legislate in that it cannot create its own laws. Um, And so we are declaring what is already written in Scripture. We are ministering that to the people themselves, and so we do not create new we create from what we already have, the source as found in the word of God uh, in the scriptures. And we don't have the power to perhaps find someone because they violated um, one of the commandments. No, we we declare their error and we minister to them therein. And so that's the distinction that we have within our own polity is that we minister and declare we don't we're not magisterial or legislative. It may help to think uh, in terms of what it means to be declarative. Uh, to think about the nature of church discipline. Uh, If it doesn't have the sword, what does it have? Well, what it has is uh, the basis of um, the word of God and what has been done in heaven. Um, I've looking through uh, Matthew 18 and uh, talking about uh, keys uh, and uh, discipline often attached to that. uh, Some of the language there of what you will, uh, what you loose on earth will uh, be loosed in heaven. What you have uh, bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Well, um, a way that you could translate that with a tense that may be better is what you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Uh, in other words, uh, what discipline is seeking to do is to see what heaven has been doing and is doing and, and to declare that, that on the basis of the word of God, if you make that declaration, we have to say heaven is saying that that the word of God is saying that you're in the wrong, uh, that you're admonished for that, 
And so the part of the nature of what church discipline is trying to do is declare what heaven has done, what what the what the throne uh, of Christ is doing. Number eight, uh, and Steve, after I read this, I'm going to kick to you to kind of summarize this final principle for us, the basic gist that it's getting at. It says, since ecclesiastical discipline must be purely moral or spiritual in its object and not attended with any civil effects, it can derive no force whatever, but from its own justice, the approbation of an impartial public and the countenance and blessing of the great head of the church. Yeah. So um, ultimately, the, you know, the object, you know, the, the, the person itself who's receiving that discipline is uh, receiving it on the basis of, of a moral or a spiritual act or, or, or failure to act. And so that's certainly that idea of the first thing that, that it's not attached to, you know, we're not, uh, uh, it's not attached to civil laws. We're not here to enforce civil laws onto people, but rather the moral and the spiritual laws they are found in scripture. Um, and, and therefore uh, it, it, it is not attended with civil effects. Now, it's important to recognize that doesn't mean that it cannot be attended by, you know, civil effects. If some if if someone uh, is an embe- is embezzling, we might still want to go ecclesiastical discipline for that embezzlement. But whether we find them guilty or not, or whether we you know excommunicate them eventually or not, uh, that does not deny the fact that there may be civil ramifications for that. It just means that our object is the moral, the spiritual sin that has been that has occurred, or or not occurred if we find them innocent, rather than um, you know, the civil uh, aspects of that. And and then it talks about this idea that this discipline uh, can derive no force, uh, whatever. Although it's important that 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 sentence continues, it doesn't end there. Uh, it derives no force, but from its own justice, the abrogation of an impartial public and the countenance and blessing of the great head of the church. Um, so on, on the one hand, uh, we don't have the authority. We, we cannot force people like, you know, I, I suppose we could literally pick them up and carry them out of the church. But in, in a sense that that we don't have the, the sword, you know, we can't force people to repent. All we can do, however, is declare, uh, you know, again, it's ministerial and declarative. We're declaring uh, their actions as sinful because of the word of God. And the, the force that derives from that declaration is not civil, it's not physical, but it's moral and spiritual. And it derives from the justice of that statement. Does Is it a just statement? Does it accord with their actions and does it accord with the word of God? And then again, this approbation of an impartial public, um, which I, I take to mean that, uh, you know, that those who, uh, whether it's the courts or whether it is, you know, the, the broader public as they see that action, um, you know, not, we're not talking about unbelievers here. We're talking about, in a sense, I think, you know, the, the church more broadly speaking, but they see that action, they see the justice in it. That's partly where that force is derived. But then ultimately, it's the countenance and blessing of the great head of the church that we are doing these things uh, it, with the power of Christ and on behalf of him, you know, we're representing, again, we're representing Christ to that individual and declaring the truth that, that comes forth from his word. Um, and so it, so it has force, but it has a spiritual force, it has a, um, um, a, a moral force, not a civil, not a physical force to it. Much in the same way the principles begin in preface number two with a preamble, they have a conclusion at the end that says, if the preceding scriptural principles 
be steadfastly adhered to, the vigor and strictness of government and discipline applied with pastoral prudence and Christian love will contribute to the glory and well-being of the church. I was impressed by Morton Smith in his commentary. He writes about this paragraph saying it serves as a reminder of the source of the government of the church, namely the Bible. It also calls for the proper practice of church government and discipline with the encouragement that if it is properly executed, there will be a twofold result, the glory of God and the well-being of the church. Um, any of y'all have any concluding uh, thoughts here for us? I just think it's been interesting as you are going through, um, as we're we're walking through the BCO, uh, perhaps people would think, um, I thought this would be about polity. I didn't know this would be about theology. But there's so much theology that undergirds our polity, and you can't talk about our polity without talking about theology. And, and so maybe that gives a context to if we're debating over practice and over compliance to our polity, it, it is not just bickering over rules, though sometimes it can degrade to that. Uh, but we are we're telling uh, each other what our uh, theological convictions are. Uh, so that's part of the reason we study polity is because polity is theology. And our theology is about rightly loving uh, God uh, with our with our minds and with our practice. Yeah, and I think it, along that same line, it, it, it helps us to remember that you know, the point of theology, even studying theology, um, you know, we could come up with a different podcast talking only about theological topics, and we would be amongst uh, you know swimming in a in a very larger pool than what we're in now. Uh, but you know, the the point of theology ultimately is to produce, you know, right practice that, you know, that, that, you know, orthodoxy that doesn't uh, result in orthopraxy is, is, is an orthodoxy. And so the, the point of thinking about these things from a principle stand is that, that we want to want to begin at the right place uh, so that our polity is not just in conformity with the basic principles of scripture but, but that the whole, everything that we do as Presbyterians, as ministers, as elders, everything that we do is uh, aimed at, is seeking the glory of our triune God and the good of his people, the good of the church. Uh, and if we don't start on the right foundation, uh, then we're going to have a much uh, harder time doing that. Well, as Hudson Taylor would say, this podcast is over. Uh, we want to say a big thank you to Steve Tipton for joining us. I'll be sure to include places that you can find him online and, and otherwise in our show notes. So if you're interested in connecting with him or, or listening to anything that he may have on the internet and other places, check down there. If you're interested in learning more about anything we spoke about, check out the show notes in your podcast player or at polityMatters.org. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter and Facebook at Polity Matters and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Scott Edberg is a senior minister of Providence PCA in Troy, Illinois, and you can find him on Twitter at S. Edberg. If you're looking for Jared, he's the pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church of Hopewell Township, and he's on Twitter at Brother Nelson. He's also an editor over at Presbyterian Polity, and you can find him writing around the internet from time to time, so be on the lookout. I serve as the associate pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cleveland, Mississippi. I'm on Twitter at underscore Ben Ratliff and on Sermon Audio under Benjamin Ratliff. We hope that you'll join us next time as we take up the final portion of the BCO preface concerning the Constitution of the PCA. Say goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye, gentlemen. See ya.